Hello and welcome to another episode of At The Margin. Today I'm joined by Lucy Martin, PhD candidate at University College Dublin, to discuss administrative burdens. If I was to distill administrative burdens into a single sentence, it would be the burden created by onerous form filling or other administrative tasks. We all know the pain that comes with having to fill out yet another form or go through a seemingly unnecessary administrative process. But the research by Lucy and others suggests that this can create barriers for many to access certain benefits or services. Lucy takes us through the mechanisms of how this plays out. This is one of the great podcast topics. It is something that I was previously unaware of, but when the concept was explained to me, I found it instantly relatable and wanted to find out more. I hope you share the same enthusiasm. Lucy Martin, thank you very much for joining. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. And the topic today is administrative burdens, which is something that I wasn't really familiar with up until I read your 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 work. And then I realized, hang on a second here, this is something that I have to tackle every day and something that's been in my life for so many times. Um, well, maybe you could kick off by just telling for a layperson, what exactly do you mean when we talk about administrative burdens? Yeah, so I think administrative burdens are a concept that a lot of people can actually relate to, despite the somewhat complicated title. So if you think back of the last time that you interacted with government or with some sort of service provider, like applying for a grant, switching your electricity provider and so on, um, can you think of any times where you thought, oh gosh, this paperwork is excessive or I've been queuing in this phone queue for hours or maybe this is just a really complicated procedure? So if any of these rings a bell, then you've experienced administrative burdens. Well, when I read and heard about Minister of Burdens, I, like my eyes lit up. I said, this is, this is something that I really uh, encounter so often in life. And, uh, but I suppose the big question then is, this is something we all have to deal with. We're, we're like filling out forms. Everybody hates filling out forms. Why is this something that maybe an economist might be interested in? Yeah, of course. So because it's so familiar to your everyday life, you might be wondering what the, I suppose, scientific or academic interest in such a topic might be. So there's a few different reasons why I think from a researcher's point of view, academic bur uh, administrative burdens, sorry, are, are really fascinating. So first off, for economists, burdens are interesting because they represent a sort of cost and um, akin to transaction costs. So let's say you're applying for a government grant to insulate your house or something like that. First off, you might face learning or search costs. You need to know they exist in the first place to research if you're even eligible, how it would all work, how much money we're talking about and so on. You might have some deliberation costs, you know, or evaluation costs. Is it actually worth doing this? What's the cost benefit sort of trade off to me spending time and effort into this grant application? And if you do decide it's worth your while, you might face some implementation costs from having to actually fill out the form, maybe gather some documentation that proves you're eligible and so on. And now when it comes to insulation grants, that's not the most, you know, psychologically stressful example necessarily, um, but other sorts of administrative transactions could be really stressful. So in particular, we know that if you're interacting with the social welfare system, there might be a lot of sort of personal feelings or stigma attached to it. And so you might also face psychological costs. So um, this really neat framework and way of thinking about administrative burdens is not my idea. Um, it's uh, an idea from uh, Shahab and Leo Lades as well, who's actually also in UCD uh, with me. But it's a neat way to think about everyday phenomena that you can actually organize into sort of a consistent framework and think, okay, 
this is not just something I'm dealing with, this is something that's creating costs, whether it's a policy or an organizational rule, as soon as I start interacting, interacting with it, then I start to face trade-offs. So from an economist's point of view, that's, that's pretty interesting, I think. It's not only interesting for economists to think about administrative burdens, but also for behavioral scientists. So uh, there's a very closely related idea to administrative burdens that behavioral scientists use called sludge. Doesn't sound very nice, uh, but what Cass Sunstein defines sludge as is it's excessive or unnecessary friction that makes it harder for us to basically do what's best for us or what we want. And small frictions, what behavioral science has told us, is they can have a really big impact. Now, mm. why is this the case? There's a few different reasons. And of course, this very much depends on the context of the specific burden. But broadly, what we know from behavioral science is, you know, we use mental shortcuts. We have limited attention, uh, limited self-control as well. So our intentions don't always max match our actions. And we end up relying on a lot of rules of thumb and so on that sometimes lead us astray. And of course, context matters a lot. So if other people are not really bothered to do something, even though we know we really should be doing it, maybe that discourages us a little bit or really any kind of friction. Actually, there's some really, some really tiny frictions that you might think, you know, surely any economist worth their salt wouldn't even consider this as a cost in, in the trade-off. But in fact, because of behavioral factors, they end up having a really big impact. So I think the most striking example I came across was um, this one experiment from the behavioral insights team. So they worked with the tax services and they reduced just one click from the journey, from the user journey um, of going onto the, um, onto the tax website and then finding the form to sort of fill out your tax declaration. And that's, you know, you're legally obliged to fill your taxes. So it's not like an extra click could really change something. But what they noticed is when you change the process from clicking onto a web page where you could then get to the form to then instead clicking directly onto an editable form, that significantly increased by a few percentage points the number of people actually filling out the form. And, you know, at first I thought, this is crazy. I mean, I'm not going to fail to fill my taxes because of something like that. But now that I started filling out my own taxes in, in the past few years, I've really yeah. changed my mind, I have to say. I like I've had some. I remember when I did my J one in the states a while ago, you could claim back some sort of taxes afterwards, but you had to do so much paperwork, and a lot of people didn't do it. But then I remember lately there was some. I went on to the revenue in in Ireland, and there was a situation where you could, I can't remember what it, what it was, but you could sort of reassess whether you paid enough tax or too much, and that was a very straightforward process. And the, well, for me anyway, it wasn't just the clicks, but also. To actually do the thing properly, you have to learn, you have to, you have to read up on everything, you have to figure things out. And I feel like I have so much brain power in the day, I don't want to waste it thinking about taxes. But uh, it's, it's interesting how these things manifest, I suppose. I mean, something I, I should have mentioned before is that, um, you know, it's not just economists and behavioral scientists who are interested in administrative burdens. It's also people who work on public administration. So how the government can better deliver services and so on. Because in a way, if you're facing all of this extra effort that you mentioned and being put off from engaging with things that sometimes, you know, you're entitled to by law, then that's also kind of a failure on, on the part of the public administration. And so one of the concepts that they've been studying recently is administrative literacy. So all of these things that you had to learn, you know, maybe depending on your background, depending on your prior experiences and so on, you might be uh, really good or not so good at dealing with different sorts of, of procedures. So it's not just the context that sort of has a behavioral impact on you. It's also what you're bringing to, to your experience and your interaction with government or with whatever paperwork we're talking about.
we can see that there's this sort of additional cost, to put it in the economic, economist's framework, associated with carrying out different transactions, and maybe it might guide you away from certain things that are in your best interest. Are there other outcomes maybe that you've come across or that, that will be interesting to, to hear about? Yeah, so administrative burdens can really impact us in a lot of ways. And I, in my mind, I find it easier to sort of separate it as the experience and then the outcome. So the experience itself, administrative burdens, just encountering them, regardless of the outcome of the procedure, is impacting us. So I mentioned before the idea of psychological costs. So, for example, in the U.S., if you're applying for food stamps, so, you know, assistance to help pay for your groceries and, and so on, um, it's well known to be a process associated with a lot of stigma. So you have to prove, you know, to the social workers and the government that you're sort of deprived enough to need the money and so on. And that's just not a pleasant experience for anyone. Mm. Uh, there's other sort of, um, you know, benefits or processes that might be associated with a lot of stress and uncertainty. I mean, you know, if you don't get that money, how will you pay for your groceries next month? Another benefit that's associated with a lot of stigma is um, housing benefits, actually. And this really cool study recently by Elizabeth Linos and um, her co-author looked at housing benefits and changed just a few little things in a pamphlet telling people who might be eligible about this benefit. So, you know, instead of saying, um, you know, you might be eligible and here's this, uh, here's this benefit and, and what it's about, they changed the wording to say, you know, plenty of people are struggling to pay rent. You're not alone. It's not your fault. Um, you know, everyone who's entitled can get this benefit, blah, blah, blah. And sort of changing the wording, just those small things like that. And through that, they managed to significantly increase the number of people who inquired about it and who applied. And there was also some indicative evidence that it might be helpful in sort of reducing the racial gap and some other inequalities in accessing these benefits. So I really want to stress that kind of the stigma, inequality, and psychological costs are a big impact um, of administrative burdens that often is sort of disregarded when we're maybe designing a policy and thinking, ah, sure, we can get people to do a bit of extra paperwork because that makes our life easier or, you know, some some other reason. So that's one big big cost I, I really wanted to highlight. There's obviously others I can <laughs> speak to as well. Yeah, so, like, that's really interesting. So it's not just all the forms you have to fill out. It, there's a lot of detail there in terms of, like, the minutiae of, of how things are presented and... It really comes down to like there's a, we're a long way off getting to the op- optimizing the format of these things if, if you consider all those behavioral factors. That's right. And w- one thing that sort of makes it even more difficult for people to really get a good sense of what the all different costs and experiences and then have they impact outcomes is honestly, it's a bit difficult to collect data on all of these different dimensions. So recently, one thing I've really been interested in personally is to try and sort of map out the landscape of administrative burdens in people's lives. You know, how much time do we spend on this stuff? Um, how does it impact us emotionally? And then how might it impact our choices given everything we've already experienced? And um, I found some things which, you know, I thought were pretty interesting. So this was a study I did with a UK sample, but, um, you know, I, I think it would probably apply in a lot of other places. I found that people across all kinds of areas, you know, um, childcare admin, taxes, benefits, bills, savings, and so on, they were spending on average about an hour just on paperwork. And the type of paperwork they were spending time on really impacted them in different ways. So the sort of administrative procedures people enjoyed the most, they made them feel, you know, the most happy and confident and competent, were admin relating to their children and and also to their savings. 
and mm -hmm. also to sort of shopping and goods and services, which I wasn't that surprised by, you know, signing up my child for a swimming camp or, or whatever could be pretty fulfilling, even though it's a pain to find out his passport and whatever else. But then in contrast, the domains that people least enjoyed that made them feel the most um, stressed out and anxious and so on, were dealing with benefits and with the government in general, as well as with tax and debt related admin. And that wasn't, you know, so surprising. Um, when you think about it, I mean, I could certainly relate <laughs> to, mm. to those findings, but what I found so interesting was to see, um, you know, all of these different domains together and how they really add up in, in our lives um, and especially how they might then impact the choices that we make, because there is no shortage of, of evidence that, yes, these administrative burdens have a negative, significant, consistent impact in lots of domains on our ability to claim benefits, to fill taxes, to access services and, and so on and so forth. And some of us uh, more so than others. It's a bit like um, I remember hearing before that there was research on people are more likely to check their investments if they're doing well than if they're doing bad. It's like a head in the sand approach. And is it that people put their head in the sand when, they, when it comes, like I, I definitely am guilty of this for things that, that, that have the sort of emotion, negatively emotional connection. And then does that mean you have to put their ears that need more effort to try and counteract those, those negative effects of, of the burden, I suppose? Maybe, yeah, I, I would certainly say so, because, of course, some domains, we don't really have a, a choice whether we engage with them or not. And so, of course, I found that, you know, people with worse financial well-being are more likely to engage with debt and less mm -hmm. likely to engage with savings, things like that. Uh, but on the other hand, there's many, many administrative procedures that are all too easy to avoid, even though you might really benefit from, from engaging with them. So reducing psychological costs and people's expectation of what this cost will be on the offset, um, I suspect could certainly make a difference. I, I've, you've done some work then looking at maybe the distribution across different types of cohorts, and maybe you could tell us a bit about that, who, who are more, more likely to be affected by different types of burdens. Yeah, that's right. So the way I like to think about it is all of us face some administrative burdens in some contexts. They are very much unavoidable uh, because, you know, we live in a society and whatnot. But some of us face different sorts of burdens and are differentially impacted by them. And there's a really fascinating uh, research done by Julian Christensen and some other people looking at human capital and administrative burdens. So the idea is that there's this sort of catch-22 where the very people, the very groups who most need access to, you know, public services and, and so on, are also the people who might find it the hardest to overcome the barriers that are created by administrative burdens. So, for example, um, if you have health issues, physical or mental, if you are facing uh, financial scarcity or you have low income, or maybe if you're experiencing age-related cognitive decline, then all of these factors mean you could really benefit from, you know, accessing government services that are very often tailored for exactly these situations. And yet, these very factors of disadvantage might make it harder for you um, to, you know, sort of get your executive function uh, functioning at, at, you know, peak level and have the time and energy and, uh, you know, all kinds of resources needed to actually power through these, uh, these interactions with the government. So that's kind of the, the theory behind it. And then we have recently mounting uh, sort of bits of evidences from various contexts showing that, yes, groups who are disadvantaged tend to have a harder time 
overcoming burdens, even though you know they're very much the people who government programs should be the most uh, you know targeting. Um, so for example, in uh, one of the experiments that I did, so it was just a little online experiment showing people some hypothetical scenarios and asking them, you know, you, you're eligible for this government benefit and do, you know, would you go for it? How likely are you to actually go through the process? And then I randomly varied the level of burden and the type of burdens that people might face. So for example, in one scenario, it was really easy. You just sort of, you, you do it online, in person, whatever you want to do. It's a short form and just, you know, um, send it off. But in some other versions, you had to get a phone call from a government worker to determine your eligibility. And, you know, your friend told you it wasn't a super nice interaction. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was actually a 10-page form and you had to print it out and you had to go to an in-person meeting to sort of show all your eligibility documents and so on. And what I found is that in this government benefit scenario, when the burden was low, so really quick and easy form, then people who are older, who have low financial well-being, and who have health issues were more likely than others to actually go through with it, which makes sense. They have sort of higher, maybe um, they, they have more to benefit from actually getting this government benefit. It represents a higher amount of money for them and, and so on. However, then when the burden was high, and especially with a sort of a unpleasant interaction with a government worker, then people in these three groups, older, low financial well-being and health issues, were all less likely than people who weren't disadvantaged to actually say they would go through uh, with this uh, um, with this benefit application. Uh, so I think that was kind of a neat example, even in a sort of hypothetical context of just this catch-22 that I was mentioning before, you know, they need it more, they're conscious that they need it more, and yeah. yet the barriers loom larger um, for these groups. Is there any any research on maybe what, what drives some of the differences between different groups? Yeah, so this is because this is still a relatively recent area of research. So the, the term itself, I think it's been used for this sort of context since 2012 or so on. And then in 2018, there was this book by Don Monihan and Pamela Hurd, and sorry, by Pamela Hurd and Don Monihan called Administrative Burdens. And that really made the concept sort of um, more widely accessible or understandable for other researchers, built up some interest and, and so on. So it's still very new trying to understand the mechanisms behind sort of unequal impact, uh, distributive effects of administrative burdens. But there are already a few types of factors that are starting to crop up. So in this human capital research that I was mentioning before, um, one mechanism that they really emphasized was executive function. So if you don't really have the time or the energy to be dealing with these complex processes, or you, you, know, you have a hard, harder time getting through them and doing sort of lengthy and effortful tasks, then that's going to be impacting you disproportionately. And that's also the sort of um, factors that might be impacting the groups that I mentioned more heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also just very sort of very obvious factors um, that we should consider. So for example, um, if you have health issues, it's simply, it's literally painful for you to be spending time and effort going through this paperwork, researching things, going to the social welfare office, speaking to someone and so on. So Elizabeth Bell and some of her co-authors uh, just recently put out a really fascinating study looking at what happens when people who have different sorts of diagnosis interact with the government. And they found that, you know, the more disabilities or the more health issues you have, and the less likely you are to actually take up and policy programs. So there's kind of a cumulative impact of health problems on your policy take up. Yeah, that cumulative impact, it sounds like it could, it, it can work in both directions. So, okay, if, if you're, if you're less able to, to go and, and, you know, carry out these tasks, well, then it means you're less likely to, to benefit. And then maybe you're more likely to be 
less able in the future, that sort of thing. But maybe at the other end of the spectrum, if you're really well able, that means that to um to carry different tasks, that means that you're able to gather more resources and maybe like if, if the really top end of the spectrum, like you have a PA to do all your admin admin stuff for you. It just means like it feels like there's growing inequality. Yeah, there can be sort of a perverse effect, I suppose, of, of administrative burdens. And, that, you know, even if you remove burdens, who is going to be able to take advantage of this opportunity? And so this kind of idea of policy targeting, of course, is something that economists are, are interested in. Now, in public administration, it tends to be maybe a thornier concept to grapple with because the baseline assumption in that field would be, well, the, the targeting is determined at the policy stage. You know, we define this as the eligible group for that benefit. So anyone who's in there should be able to access it. And and obviously, I, I don't disagree with that. But then from an economist's point of view, we like to still think about the makeup of who within the eligibility group is more likely to be able to take it up, right? So there was um, some really interesting research of, on food stamps done uh, a few years ago by Amy Finkelstein and uh, Notovedicto, I think, who basically did an intervention calling up people who were eligible for food stamps and saying, hey, you know, I, I see that you're eligible. I can help you apply. Do you want to take up my offer? And they sort of looked at, you know, who this application assistance offer was most helpful to. And what they found was actually those who were the least disadvantaged within the eligible group, so still disadvantaged enough to be qualified to actually access it, but among people who were eligible, the ones who were the most likely to actually take up the offer of application assistance were the ones who had the most resources. Um, so, you know, they were uh, more educated, more likely to have English as their first language and so on. And what they concluded was that actually, if you are, if you have more human capital and more advantages, you are able to make a more informed decision. And therefore, you're more likely to recognize the opportunity for what it is and think like, oh, this is actually worth spending my time on. Where someone who is more disadvantaged might have even less familiarity with the program to begin with, but or, or I, I don't know, actually, it's pretty well known in, in the US. So that's, that's probably not it. <laughs> so maybe scratch that. Um, but maybe people who are more disadvantaged just don't have the resources to, um, you know, sort of properly consider and then take the time to take up this offer. Um, so that's something that we should, you know, be taking into account when trying to design policies. And just on the topic of policies and intervention, um, there are some efforts at various levels to try and. I suppose, overcome some of these administrative burdens. And have you been involved in work in that area or you're familiar with the work at the very least? A little bit. So it's not all doom and gloom, uh, all doom and gloom with administrative burdens research, you know. There, uh, in the last few years, there's been significant efforts around the world by sort of governments and authorities to tackle administrative burdens. So, for example, uh, in the US, they've had, they've actually had for a while this, um, this legislation called the Paperwork Reduction Act. But in the past couple of years, they've actually started putting out uh, memorandums and guidance on how to actually reduce paperwork. So, you know, compiling um, stats on how much uh, federal regulations, how much paperwork burden they were creating, mandating authorities to come up with different ways they could reduce burden and so on. Um, likewise, in Australia and New South Wales, they have, I would say, the most developed sludge reduction program in the world. So they've put out a lot of best practice and they've done a lot of interventions to reduce sludge and administrative burdens in sort of government services. And they basically see it as part of good customer service for, for citizens. And then uh, lastly, the United Nations have also made a public commitment to identify and tackle administrative burdens. So I've been involved uh, with the UN a little bit working on 
administrative burden identification and reduction. And what's really exciting is, you know, the UN is the largest organization in the world. It has a huge potential for impact in so many policy areas and including many that are uh, just very difficult to tackle at just a national government level. And so the, yeah, the potential for impact is just huge there. But it's also an organization that's very much, um, you know, it's large, it has a lot of history, it's very difficult sometimes to uh, to change things. So it's been really fascinating to try and see where the opportunities are. So maybe I could give you one example of, of what um, sludge reduction, burden reduction can look sure. like in, in the UN. So one example that I think is, is really cool was some work that was done by the World Bank, actually. And so they were doing a microcredit program. Uh, I think it was in, in Bangladesh. And what the program was basically about was giving small loans to uh, widows and elderly women and, and so on. Uh, and a big part of the program was to try to um, form sort of strong community ties and make sure these women weren't isolated. They had social interactions and, and so on. And so social workers would visit these women regularly um, and sort of do a bit of paperwork about the loan, but the aim was really to try and understand their needs and have a connection and, and so on. But what they realized was actually most of these visits were being spent just dealing with the paperwork and filing out these loan repayment forms. And of course, that wasn't really the objective initially. So they looked at this form and they thought, okay, how can we actually cut the sludge here? And they realized they were asking for a whole lot of information that they didn't really need to be asking. So they redesigned the form, and in the end, they only really asked for like four or five pieces of information. So it ended up being a very small and easy to fill out card, where they just asked for you know the date, the village name, and the repayment amount, and the loan installment number. And that was it. That's really all they needed to know because all the other info, the social worker already knew it. it mm -hmm. You know, it was just a waste of time, right? Um, and what they actually found is that it freed up over ten hours a week per social worker. And now these workers were able to actually spend this time as quality time with the people to whom they were delivering the services and interacting with, with the community, instead of spending it, you know, just literally filling out paperwork they didn't need to be filling out. And I, th I think this is a really good example because it shows how administrative burdens, you know, removing them can help everyone. It can help the people who are interacting with the policy, who are sort of um, in, in receipt of it or the community, because now they're receiving better service without all of this sludge, but it's also better for the organizational efficiency of the government or the policy organization that's sort of delivering the policy, because that way, you know, they're, they're not wasting their time on stuff that's not needed, and they can actually focus on the mission uh, that's, that they're working on. Yeah, no, really interesting. And it's good to hear that it's good for the, it's good for the people giving, like, the the administrative staff it's it's in their interest as well as in us it can be in their interest as well as the person has to fill out the form because then if incentives are aligned like that well then maybe you're more likely to get uh more you know improved uh or, or reduced uh administrative burdens um one thing that just struck me when i was thinking about it was i wonder is is can it be context specific so for example what might work in one country might work might not work in different areas or is there any evidence to that in that regard i wonder oh a hundred percent i mean that's one thing that everyone working in applied behavioral science especially in international context will will tell you is you know behavior is hundred percent context specific so do exploratory work explore you know what behavioral barriers and levers might be in place in the context and then design a burden reduction intervention I mean, okay. I'm saying this as if there's, you know, that much best practice, but in reality, it's a very new field of inquiry, but applied behavioral science in general, you know, is very sort of context aware because that's what 
what determines behavior. And there's still a lot of things that we're learning that surprise experts. I mean, just um, I think just last week, I saw a, a new paper called The Formality Effect by, uh, again, Elizabeth Linos and, and some co-authors. And basically, most experts and, and people, if you ask them and you tell them, what if we really simplify an language and use an informal aesthetic, informal tone and so on, will that make it easier for people to understand and respond to government communication? And most people would say yes. Um, even I would said yes, you know, before re reading that uh, that article, because if you make things easier to understand and more attractive to the eye, and you use fun colors and whatever, uh, then people are more likely to read it. They find it easier to understand, so they might take whatever action the letter is asking them to take, right? But in fact, what they found in in this study is that some level of formality in terms of the aesthetic and also the language, as long as it's still you know intelligible, can be beneficial. Um, or at least in certain contexts, because it sort of conveys, um, you know, seriousness and trustworthiness and, and so on. So basically what I'm trying to say is we are constantly learning what works and what doesn't and, and it, in which contexts. Uh, and in terms of uh, cross-cultural, I suppose, differences especially, uh, one thing that struck me recently was talking with someone located in, in a different country and talking about reducing paperwork requirements. And they told me, you know, one barrier you might face is it conveys importance for senior people to have people, you know, bringing them paperwork to sign and, and so on. So, you know, these are some factors that we're not necessarily aware of when we're thinking, oh, sure, just cut the sludge. Okay, but how are we going to get people on board? Because if you design an intervention and people don't actually adopt it, <laughs> the very people who are supposed to be implemented, implementing it are not convinced, then, you know, it's, it's not going to work. So that's one of the things that I've spent a lot of time uh, making sure I, I can, you know, ensure is getting everybody on board in, in the projects because they're the key people who are going to be implementing it. Yeah, no, a lot. There's a lot there. Just on our last point, and it reminds me of in, when you think about climate change. Like we sort of know what what are the be first best solutions for a lot of th a lot of policies when it comes to tackling climate change, but they're politically difficult. And then many would argue that okay, well, there's no point in having a, a shiny, great theoretically optimal policy sitting on a shelf you know you're better off having a second best policy in practice and maybe that sort of that sort of thinking can be applied in this context that you might have a really great implementation or way of going about tackling the issue but then if people don't want to implement it maybe that's an issue yeah i mean there's there's definitely different sort of behavioral tools you can use to to sort of get people on board i, I know that sounds kind of manipulative but you know there's also a whole field about the ethics of behavioral science and, and so on. But, you know, as long as uh, people's autonomy is respected and we're being transparent and so on, there are some ways that you can frame your message to, um, you know, better show the benefit, or make it easier to understand, making it easier to decide and so on. So, for example, one of them is just that the messenger of whatever um, communication you're trying to send should be somebody who's you know, trustworthy and uh, relatable and and so on. So when communicating with, for example, Irish citizens about, um, you know, energy savings, who might they be more willing to listen to? Who do they find, you know, a lot of things you see in the news is all oh, those politicians telling me to do my washing at this time, like, sure, they never have to worry about that or something like that, you know? So maybe that message should be coming from, from someone different and so on. All right, okay, you're getting me thinking about like all these celebrities that do uh, 
that do all these, uh, well, maybe not for government special, uh, government-related uh, tasks, but definitely you see some of the advertisements. Like, I think it was Pinergy had some rugby players, was it Paul O'Connell and all these different guys uh, doing their ads for them. Maybe it's because he was a trusted figure. I don't know. Um, that's exactly it. That's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they call it in marketing, but that's probably yeah. along the lines uh, of what they thought. But you no, know, just another thing that came to mind there as well is that if we have a situation where it's very context specific, um, we're trying to tackle an issue and have to take into account, you know, local cultural aspects, and then whatever the sp- particular application is, the context of that, that makes it really, really complicated because there's so many different variables then that might change things. Uh, what are what's the advice for policy on that? Like, is it a case that you have to? You have to have some expert that knows everything or maybe different experts for different areas or if it feels very different to other areas of ec- or maybe economics or other applications where it seems a bit more one size fits all. Um, like it's a real challenge. It's definitely a challenge. And, you know, that's something, for example, that um, I experienced in, in the UN that, you know, of course, we want to apply behavioral science, but then how do you make that happen in teams where, you know, they can't just hire uh, a context, um, a, a subject matter expert and a behavioral scientist for every project. Um, and also, obviously, we would love to do a randomized control trial for every project and do a full on project to really understand all of the behavioral factors. But Realistically, that's just not always the case. Um, so there's kind of two two levels, I suppose, that I'm thinking. The first level is general best practice, guidance, and sort of creating a culture of sludge reduction. Um, so that's something that, for example, the New South Wales government is really good at. So they've put out some guides, you know, reducing sludge in letters, reducing sludge in phone and face-to-face interactions. And there you can see some sort of big principles like keep it simple, automate processes where you can, be sure to be inclusive by offering aid to people who might need it, um, remove steps that are unnecessary and so on and so forth. And you can sort of train people you know, more easily than to train them to be behavioral scientists anyway, to kind of notice these sort of factors that might make a process more or less burdensome and for whom, and to just sort of have these principles of sludge reduction in mind as you design and implement policy. Now, of course, the more uh, sort of full-on version of that would be to do a sort of scientific research project and an intervention that you rigorously test for everything. And so here there's also some best practice that you can use. So actually with some colleagues in New South Wales and in the UN, we've been putting together what we call a a sludge reduction methodology. Um, And so this is basically walking you through how you can tackle sludge in a particular process that you're interested in. So how to scope a process, how to determine if it's sort of a good fit for a sludge reduction project, how to conduct what we call a sludge audit. So this was coined by Cass Sunstein, and then the New South Wales team has done, um, you know, over 50 sludge audits, I think, at at this point. So you draw the behavioral user journey, all of the little steps that people have to take, you know, learn about this grant and go on the website and find the form and fill it out and wait hours on the phone and make a mistake, call the helpline and and so on. Uh, And then for each of these steps, you can try and audit where the sludge is and how severe it is. You know, is it taking up time? Is there a money equivalent, like a wage lost or something like that as um, that we can estimate it as? And does it impact people's, you know, where are the drop-off rates in the process? And of course, this all maybe sounds a bit intimidating, but to anyone who is actually working on a particular policy, usually they already actually have a very good idea of where the sludge is and why it matters and how it impacts people, because there's a subject experts. So some people might tell you, um, you know, people do tend to go through with it because it's legal, but we get so many FAQs and, you know, people don't know where to find information. Or, you know, a, a good few people inquire 
easier, but after they see the, the guidelines we send them, they're just sort of too complicated and that's where the drop-off happens and so on. So you might already know where the problem is. You might already have data that's automatically collected like customer satisfaction, drop-off rates and so on. And that can give you the tools or the information you need to determine what would actually help people the most um, to cut out sludge. Okay, that's, that's, really, that's really encouraging because I was just thinking there, the traditional economic approaches you have this framework and then you can apply that to different contexts and then when i was thinking about what you're saying with this the administrative burden and sludge it feels like that's completely out the window that you don't have that sort of framework but what you just explained is a framework that gets you most of the way so it feels like like you can like address majority maybe two-thirds or more of of, of where, where, where the problem is and then i suppose then you get in with your fine to comb beyond that yeah that's really what's what we're hoping for you know is to talk to people who are working in all different kinds of contexts and, and policy environments and tell them you know you're the subject matter expert on what the challenges are and how your process works and what we can sort of point you towards or, or help you with is the behavioral principles that will tell you why this or that friction might actually really matter and help direct you know potential solutions um, and then um, you know helping with general you know how to test it and so on but as i said it's not always possible to do a big trial so there's so many things you can do you can simply look at you know before and after you implement the solution that you've designed um you know your existing data sources again are you getting less complaints call is the drop off rate lower and, and so on you can do a pre and a post sludge audit i mean there's there's so many ways that you can adapt it to how the organization works um but i yeah i really don't want it to be intimidating for people to say, well, you know, that, that sounds great in principle, but it's of no use. And I think that's a pitfall that's too easy for us academic researchers to fall into is we design a really neat system, but it only works if we're the ones going in, uh, then being lost because we're not used to working in government, then trying to apply it to the T when it's just not realistic. And that's really what I've learned from working with the UN is how to actually best translate the expertise that we have so it's actually useful and applicable in people's sort of busy policy work. Do you want to go through some of your other, your other work? So you've done stuff on intra-household allocation of ad administrative tasks. Yeah, so I was really curious to understand not just, you know, what sort of households uh, might face what sort of administrative burdens, but also who in the household actually completes these tasks. You know, often in economics, outside of obviously the intra-household literature, we tend to think of policies as things that are, you know, applied to households. But in fact, as I've just sort of spent the, the past hour rambling about, you know, we have behavioral factors that make us react and experience uh, burdens in, in different ways. So actually, the individual person in the household who's dealing with this task quite matters because it might impact, you know, their time use, which we know is a, is a big source of gender equality, the amount of unpaid labor that they do in terms of filling out those forms and, you know, household management and whatnot, and also the actual impact because we have some evidence from behavioral economics telling us that there are gender differences in um, you know, risk and time and social preferences, and that might impact how people react to the prospect of burdensome processes. Now, there's also some literature that argues that these gender differences are overstated because of researcher bias and so on. But nevertheless, I wanted to know, is the burden load gendered, basically? Um, and so what I found is that within households in, in the UK, in my little survey sample, I found that in those households where it was uh, a man living with a female partner or a woman living with a male partner who were answering my surveys, they didn't tend to have a gendered allocation. So overall, they both spent the same sort of total amount, but they spent their time on different things. 
So in particular, the woman spended to more so tended to more so sorry spend time on sort of everyday household management kind of admin. So goods and services, care work, especially with regards to children uh, and a little bit benefits. Whereas the men tended to deal with the admin more so related to less frequent and more um, sort of financial, long-term financial management sort of tasks, um, such as savings and investments and things like that. So there's some pretty interesting implications from, from that. So that means, you know, if you create a policy or sort of a service agreement that is uh, particularly burdensome, then it's not equal who it will impact, just like how we said with health and finances and so on. Within the household, um, you're also going to be having a, a differential impact on, on men and women. Yeah, so yeah. I'd say it's probably not that surprising to, to hear these results. And in fact, we do have research more broadly on, you know, gender, time use and unpaid work. So looking at, uh, you know, housework and care work and so on, we do find a gender allocation. And women do tend to be more so responsible for household management. But then again, men tend to be more responsible for financial decisions. So there was kind of lacking research looking specifically at administrative tasks, just because if that's not your research question, the survey typically isn't going to be that suited to, to answering it because they're such sort of small and piecemeal um, tasks that they're just difficult to capture. So that's kind of what led me to, um, to do my own survey, even though, yes, I, I sort of had the, the same sort of priors as you as about what I would find. Um, but what explains this allocation? So um, there is a literature on gender identity that finds that it's not just about income, specialization, and bargaining power. And in fact, sometimes um, women with higher incomes tend to then end up as compensation for violating gender norms, they end up taking on more of this unpaid workload so that they don't sort of threaten the, uh, the identity norms that their household operates under. Um, so I found something similar in my own data. So I looked at, you know, whether the male or female part of the couple was the breadwinner. And I found that in fact, it does sort of seem to matter in terms of reducing men's workload, but not so much um, women's. Uh, but I did find that, uh, so I asked people, you know, between you and your partner, who is more so responsible for this area usually, sort of in addition to the time use stuff. And I found that uh, when the, woman becomes a breadwinner, uh, men's workload doesn't change so much. They don't take on any more sort of care admin or anything, but women who become breadwinners, they do tend to become more involved in financial related admin. And so that could also be seen as a good thing. And we can't just think of it as a monolith of unpaid work, you know, and um, some of these tasks do confer, you know, power within the household and agency and could be seen as desirable, whereas others might be less so desirable. And, you know, it's quite a complex picture because sometimes the tasks that don't give you that much agency over the household's finances are also tasks that you find more pleasant. Like it's still nicer to sign up your child for summer camp than to deal with your debts, no matter what. So, you know, it's, it's a very complex picture, but really fascinating to look into. Very, uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, I suppose just to wrap up, have you come across any ways that people could hack their own lives and, and uh, get through some of these administrative burdens? Or is, is there anything that, that comes to mind uh, as an example? Um, I suppose I would just like to encourage, I suppose, everyone who is aware of administrative burdens, even 
you know, in their own personal life or if they're working on any sort of policy or procedures to try and sort of put your economist or your behavioral scientist hat on and to try and think through the behavioral journey that you're going on or that the, the citizens you're interacting with are going on and to try and identify where the sludge friction or burdens might be and to think through how it might impact people, their time, their emotions, the decisions that they might make, and then how it might impact some people other than others. Um, because first of all, it's super interesting. And second of all, you might find ways to either hack your own life and sort of improve your, your own outcomes or to improve something in a process that you're working on. And once you start thinking about it, it's very difficult to actually stop seeing it everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I, I would like to say there's a magic solution, but even as somebody who you know, studies this every day, I have a really hard time to, to get myself to complete these processes, even when I know I'm leaving money on, on the table. So I think often, you know, you can try and improve your own administrative literacy and the more you have experience with these processes and the more you become, you know, familiar and they might be less intimidating and you might spend less time and effort doing them. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest gains by far are to be made by the people who actually design these processes, you know, automating them, you know, making pensions from an opt-in system into an opt-out system that I know is, is now yeah. very topical in, in Ireland, um, in, the, in the UK, you know, Lim Delaney and Karen Arulsami, who also were in, uh, in UCD uh, with me, they did research showing that just making pensions opt-out, switching by default, that completely got rid of any sludge, any administrative burden, right? You don't have to do anything anymore. And that um, uh, closed a lot of the mental health gap in pension participation. So, you know, as much as I love neat nudges and little behavioral tricks and so on, I think here the best way we can use behavioral insights to fix sludge and burdens is really by changing the entire choice architecture. So it's ambitious, but also has much more potential for impact, I think. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense, definitely. I was just, something that came to mind to me was, I like I tried to manage certain tasks certain times of the day. I don't know if that was... Uh, or some some way to get around this, but uh, definitely, um, it sounds like it's more of a yeah. There's there's more the more low, low hanging fruit from the the side of the admin staff. Sure. And there's also things you can do at a, at an individual level. Of of course, I just I wanted to to highlight where the most gains could be made. But of course, there's research that can be done on helping you overcoming friction. So for example, this this idea of um, making use of sort of moments of change. You know, why do people make New Year's resolution or start something new on their birthday or on the first of the month? Is because that might sort of help you gain momentum and so on. So, I, but that's kind of more general behavioral science insights. So for example, um, Katie Milkman and um, people, other people working on sort of individual behavioral interventions would be maybe better placed than me to uh, to address that but uh, i think the book how to change by milkman and also behavioral science in the wild uh, i think edited by dilip soman i really enjoyed both of these books and they're chock full of those sort of individual tips and tricks you can use to sort of leverage behavioral insights for your own benefit so i'd recommend that if that's something you're interested in okay perfect that's great i'll have to add it to the list um perfect we have a reading list as well to go at the to go at the episode uh okay lucy well thanks a million that was that was really good and really interesting thanks thanks for having me